Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, Cass is on vacation this week, but I am back today with part two of my interview with one of our favorite fashion activists and fellow podcasters, Claire Press. Claire is the creator of the amazing podcast, Wardrobe Crisis, and if any of you are not already familiar with her work and you would like to learn more about how the contents of your closet intersect with matters of social and ecological justice and sustainability, well, look no further. Wardrobe Crisis's nearly 200 episodes tackle fashion's tough issues, and each week Claire speaks to some of the brightest fashion thinkers of today. Claire is also a sought-after public speaker and author of several books, the latest of which is Wear Next, Fashioning the Future, and that is W-E-A-R Next. So in part one of this episode, we learned a little bit about Claire's background at Marie Claire and Vogue, where she was the first ever sustainability editor, and we address the frantic pace of fashion at the present moment. We define the term ultra-fast fashion and chat a little bit about some of the controversies surrounding ultra-fast fashion's number one offender, and that of course would be Shein. Today, however, Claire will introduce us to a whole host of disruptors, visionaries, and creators who are currently doing super interesting work to right some of the wrongs in our current fashion system. Today's episode is all about fashion's future and where we are headed next. Claire, thank you so much for joining us for part two. You have gone all over the globe researching this book, honestly. You spoke to so many people. Um, At one point, you went attended a fashion exhibition at the Fashion Museum in Bath. And you talk a little bit about this story, how at this exhibition, viewers were asked to leave feedback about what fashion means to them by contributing to Mm. a collage. And I really, really loved you sharing that story about your contribution. And because apparently you wrote on a little post-it note or a little note card, fashion is a problem waiting to be solved. So... I'm hoping we can get into this. This is the point where we're going to flip the script and stop talking about fashion's problems. And we're going to talk to, oh, well, we're going to talk about some of its possible solutions and some of the amazing humans that you encountered while you were doing this very important work. And I've picked out a couple for us to chat about. And I just want to say that it's a little bit heartbreaking that we can't talk about each and every one that you address in the book, but that's also the reason why all of our listeners should go out and get your book. I guess maybe one of the first things that I want to talk about, can we talk about the pace of fashion currently? We have talked about it before on the show, but I I think it's worth repeating. You know, you point out in the book that the official fashion week calendars for New York, London, Milan, and Paris for fashion week, and this is the official calendars. There are an estimated 194 shows per year that 
doesn't include the haute couture shows. It doesn't include menswear. It doesn't include bridal. So there's at least 250 fashion shows happening per year. And if you divide this out evenly, which clearly it's not, you know, these world's top luxury brands are basically holding a major fashion show every less (laughs) than a day and a half. So... (laughs) You know, I mean, what's going on here? You know, it, it it really kind of like rings this bell of something else that you point out in the book. Um, I think it was somebody else. I don't think this is your quote. I think this is somebody that you quote. Uh, they say, paradoxically, doing nothing but work will turn your work into nothing. Oh, yeah. That's a quote from an Instagram post by a wonderful student. Oh, it was founded as a student magazine. It's grown now. It's called One Granary, mm-hmm. attached to London College of Fashion. And they, they often do really great posts on Instagram that speak to students' overwhelm and yeah. also try to support them in finding another way through that. And I bet listeners relate to this in their own worlds, that the pace of life, there's a line in the book on this chapter about slow, which is envisaging a scenario where we all slow down and everything is mm. better. Yes. That talks about the speeding up of the show cycle yes but it also just a throwaway line i read it somewhere i thought it was crazy that people are walking 10 percent faster (laughs) we're just doing everything faster everything faster 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 and that does you there are limits in well i also write about planetary boundaries you know we, we don't like this idea of the world being limited we feel culturally that that is somehow bad or depressing or something to rail against that we uh can only go so far but actually that's life there are limits there's limits to our creative capacity there are limits to our personal energy and there are physical time limits that mean that just trying to cram more and more in will eventually create some kind of busting of the system congestion (laughs) and i think (laughs) Yeah, or I was thinking of more violent explosion. (laughs) But I think coming out of that, people want and yearn for a slowing down. And we can actually design a system that encourages that in a beautiful way. Yeah, and I think people are kind of like yearning for that more and really starting to understand that more. There are amazing makers. There are amazing visionaries that are already out there doing this work of slowing fashion down and you speak about some of them in the book are there a couple that you might like to point out i'll mention ronald van der kemp who is a dutch couturier Mm. i just love him i met him once he's he's one of those people who is walking the talk of what he yes what he says he's going to do so i interviewed him once and yet this man will respond to me when I send him an email and ask him for some help. He's making the time in his world to dedicate to things he thinks are worth supporting. And the reason I mention him is is he's a high-end fashion designer. He shows on the couture schedule in Paris, Mm -hmm. but he insists on staying where he is, which is his hometown in Amsterdam. And he also insists on saying, I'm not having seasons because I don't like it. It doesn't suit the pace of what I want to do. And so he calls his collections wardrobes and then numbers them consecutively and makes them available on an ongoing basis. So you as a client can buy an item from wardrobe one or wardrobe two, even if he is currently on wardrobe nine. 
and he's challenging this idea of seasonal obsolescence in a practical way that actually works he makes us of, of course it's couture so within that system you're already doing less but he's not doing a load of branded spin-offs or fast fashion collabs he's just saying this is my work library i feel like a, so much of big fashion right now isn't actually fashion at all it's big branding no 100 percent. i mean that that's a conversation we can have at a different day perhaps but i i think it takes guts but also a willingness not to i'm gonna say a willingness not to chase the money yes to do this and that also in brackets because we have to acknowledge it comes with its own privilege but Ronald is a genius. He's a genius. He could be doing anything. He used to work for some big fashion houses, but he chooses to do this. And I know that sometimes it's on a shoestring because he has elected not to chase those big commercial deals, but he's happy. He's creative. He's proud of what he's making and he's inspiring the people around him in an ethical way while also being a genius couture dream maker. And why not? Why don't? But but I bet you there are listeners who've never heard of him, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because we give much more attention to the ones who are branding up the old. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, uh, I, I do think this is the future of fashion, and I have said it before on the show so many times that it's that it's going to be, you know, a hundred years from now, people are going to when you acquire something, you're not just going to be discarding it. There's a whole host of reasons behind why I think that is, but, but I think a hundred years from now, we are, it's going to be unfathomable when people think about fast fashion and that like mm-hmm. a lot of items get worn once, twice or three times, and they're just tossed in the trash. You know what else just occurred to me, April? It's also about, I don't know how comfortable people are with this idea of going backwards or going back to the past, but I think it can be useful to think around how how relatively quickly we got into this mess fast fashion is new in the long view of fashion history Mm -hmm. and it i think it's also potentially on its way out although at the same time we've still got this ultra fast thing there'll be different streams right some people will pursue the slow some people will pursue the even faster but i think there's some benefit in looking back because if you think about the greatest couturiers from the 20s and 30s they were working in a similar way to ronald vanderkamp albeit without upcycled materials right i guess this fastness of fashion is something that has existed far less time than how fashion has always been before which was of the course. handmade right and, and and people paying so much appreciation um for just cloth or textiles or fabric, which is what I'm hoping that we can talk about next, if we may. We've run out of time, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I would argue that a big part of this slowing things down is using what we already have, not just in terms of garments, but also their very most basic building block, and that is textiles. So would you tell us about some of the visionaries out there who you spoke about in the book that are addressing these issues of textile waste and how they're doing so? Because some of their models of how they're working are fascinating. I'll tell you about two briefly because they're so different. Mm-hmm. So one's working 
in a very small hands-on independent way and one's trying to change the textile recycling system. The indie designer is Helen Kirkham, who is a London-based trainer maker, sneaker maker. Mm -hmm. She uses old sneakers to make extraordinarily wonderful new sneakers. And she's created this system where her and her very small team, like two or three people, go to the thrift store out the back where all the sneakers are being sorted through, rescues the ones that are single, and they're single because most people forget to tie the laces together and they get lost in the mix and you can't sell a single sneaker. And then chooses the leather ones that are single. Maybe she'll go one day going, I'm only wanting white ones or black ones. And then she'll bring them back to the studio, unpick them all in terms of all the little components. <laughs> Which is mind-boggling to begin with. Colla absolutely. <laughs> collage together all the little scraps into a new re-roll of sneaker leather that you could cut out from and then makes new ones. They're very expensive. However, the process is so inspiring and interesting. She was trained as a, a classical shoemaker. She's a, a member of the Institute of Cordwainers or the ancient livery company of Cordwainers, which is an old British shoe guild. She's young, she's fun, she's fabulous. She does fashion week shows. She's also now starting to figure out a process to do that more commercially with a footwear partner in the UK. Mm. Amazing. And then on the other end, I mean, take your pick of fiber to fiber textile recyclers. But if we're going to solve our fashion waste problem, we got to capture the waste in the first place before it escapes into the environment or gets destroyed. And the best practice would be if we could not, well, resell what's wearable. Yes. And then that which isn't wearable, if we, instead of downcycling it, which is what we do now, turn it into something of lesser quality, we turned it from fiber to fiber and maintained the quality. And the person I interview in the book that I think is very interesting on this is um, Cindy Rhodes, she runs an organization called Worn Again that is pioneering that technology. How so? Ah, well, the difficulty has been in separating mixed fibers. So if you consider that most of our clothes are made from polyester, they're also mostly blended. So you might have cotton with elastane, you might have polyester, cotton blend, and it's been difficult to chemically recycle blended fibers until now. So Warn Again is pioneering a chemical recycling technology that achieves that while maintaining quality. And the other way we recycle is called mechanical, which is what it says on the tin, we tear it up. So if you think about, we've been mechanically recycling cotton for decades. You get a load of jeans, you cut off the metal bits, and then you shred them apart with a machine or cut them up with knives and then shred them. And then you can extract the cotton fiber and respin it, but that makes it of a lower quality. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to point out one thing because this is something that I did in grad school. When we talk about like that something is a blended fiber or, or like a blended textile, there's there's fibers and there's threads, right? So your thread um, is actually usually made up of several different fibers and they're twisted together, right? And if you want to be super dorky, like stuff we learned about in grad school was like, is this a left twist? Is this a right I twist? Like blah, 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 blah. But to make some of the elasticity and the comfort that we are used to wearing on our own clothes today, oftentimes cotton will have elastic fibers 
twisted with cotton fibers. This is what like is creating the elasticity in our genes. And so what Claire is talking about is that if you want to recycle something, all of these different materials are actually twisted together in the thread that is then woven to create fabric. So this is incredibly complicated. It's incredibly like minute. And we don't think about these things every day. We just put these textiles on our bodies and like, oh, this feels great. But are you really thinking about what it is in that thread that is a fiber <laughs> that is making it feel good on your body? So well, also saying. designers, designers don't necessarily know or have the education to think about that and we're not designing for end of life yet i think in the future designers mm -hmm. will be taught to consider not just the garment's beauty and functionality for the customer and then stop but what happens to it after that customer passes it on or it becomes lost in a waste stream how can they divert that into a reuse stream and what design attributes would allow that to happen in an efficient way yeah yeah it's coming soon and there are people that are already kind of like posing these questions okay so we've talked about textiles but i'm hoping that i can ask you another question that's very much in a similar vein and and that has to do with discarded garments it's been a little bit since we've talked about this on the show explicitly but would you walk us through for our listeners the basics of what happens when our listeners donate no longer wanted garments to charity because this is a whole thing yeah well, first of all, thank you for doing that because charities need your good quality secondhand clothing. And that's mm -hmm. how part one of the ways that they can raise funds for the good work they do. And it's responsible for you to do that responsible behavior when that is the only or the best avenue available to you. If there's no curbside textile recycling, which most countries and cities still do not have. However, unfortunately, due to the volume of these clothes and the declining quality, there's a huge problem with what we call behind the scenes non-wearables. If you're donating a stained t-shirt or some old socks with holes in or something ripped beyond repair or even something ripped that could be repaired but there's no system in place to repair it, chances are that will not be resold either to rag makers to be downcycled or to be sold in stores. And nor would we want it to be sold in thrift stores because it's not good enough, is it? We wouldn't be proud to give it to a friend. Why would we think a charity should try to sell it to their customers? Unfortunately, that picture results in large amounts of either poor quality oversupply or non-wearable textiles and clothing entering the global textile resale supply chain. I'm so glad you said global because some people don't realize this is a global phenomenon that's happening. It's not that you are in your local town and then what you donate gets resold and someone else uses it. This is a whole worldwide ecosystem really that happens. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the stats are in the US, but in Australia, where I live, less than 15% of what is donated is sold in charity mm -hmm. stores domestically. I think it's similar. So think here. about all the rest of it. Where is it going? So some of it, as I said, is downcycled into rags or stuffing that could be domestic or could be offshore. 
most of it is exported for sorting in another country where labor is cheaper and don't blame the charity for doing this because remember that they need to capture the value of those donations so they can continue to do their work and sometimes they also have to pay to send it to landfill so they're paying for you to treat them like rubbish tips so then if these secondary shall we say second tier clothes and textiles enter the the supply chain and get sorted elsewhere in another country it might be dubai in europe it might be eastern europe it might be in southeast asia there's lots of different routes these textiles can take but then they would most likely be sorted by humans using their eyes and hands which means that there's a lot of room for error and that also in terms of efficiency they've just got to pick out does this look like jeans yep chuck it in there it's not a very efficient system they don't know what the fiber content is they can't really be expected to know what could be easily recycled into a new fiber or material so you got all this mess it gets exported then it gets bailed up and mostly sent to the global south to countries like mm -hmm. kenya and ghana in africa to countries like chile in south america but all over the world where people are less picky about what they're going to buy than we get to be in richer more privileged countries because remember this is the second tier and the global exporters and sorters like to say that they are supporting secondhand traders and business and entrepreneurs in the countries where these pieces end up and sometimes they are but because of all the reasons i said earlier mostly low quality and oversupply these resellers are being flooded with garbage that they then have to deal with that isn't good enough that isn't dignified that isn't decent enough to unsell and invariably that ends up in the environment and it's also disgusting and i think that's why the word the term waste colonialism is catching on because it's the best way to describe this unbalanced relationship where we've got to take responsibility as the originators of that let's yeah, face it yeah. trash and i guess what you're trying to say in terms of waste colonialism is that on average people are something buying something like 64 new garments a year ish some people more some people less but if you if you are buying that many and you're equally like discarding that many where do people think that they're those clothes are going i mean th th there are more positive outcomes you could be buying and quickly on selling clothing that would be having a high resale value that's why we've seen you know thread up have has that stat that resale is going to eclipse fast fashion by 2030 and um, if you think about depop or ebay or any number of resale platforms secondhand clothing is a huge it's boom town and the good stuff great pass it on to a new owner that's fantastic keep the value in the system the problem comes when we are passing on clothes that we can't resell and if we think we can't resell them why do we think that a charity would have mm -hmm. would fare any mm -hmm. better well i mean geography has come up in this conversation <laughs> in a big way and also it pops up in a lot of the stories that you relate in the book and i want to talk about one of the wildest stories that you talk about and that has to be this collaboration between australian companies mj bale sea forest and a bona fide sailor character who is known as two dogs 
I know that you're going to tell us more <laughs> about all of this, but can you tell us about this particular endeavor? Because I want to talk about this yeah. in terms of geography, local production, and and sustainability. And, yeah. and in the context of that, shorter supply chains are sometimes more beneficial to us all. Yeah. And this is so nice. And also I promised you positivity. So the context for all of this stuff, when I'm talking about what's going on today, I think it is pretty depressing. But I wanted to write a book about the future scenarios that mm -hmm. have already begun, but that could take off and change this story of yes. horror. <laughs> and actually most of the book is full of positive things. So yes, we've got a problem with not being able to sort our clothes for recycling yes we've got a problem with sending our problems offshore but there's also so many beautiful solutions that are just starting to percolate and this one is a lovely thing i love it so i live in australia and mj bell is an australian menswear label it's called they call themselves a gentleman's clothiers i think or gentleman's outfitters but they make lovely suits i think they're available in europe i'm not sure about the us but in 2019 like just before the pandemic i think the founders were trying to figure out what their carbon footprint was and they commissioned a life cycle analysis of their signature suit, which is a wool suit, to find out, okay, where's the biggest emissions part of this story? And they discovered it was on the farm, which was a surprise to them. So most of the emissions came from petrol and moving this stuff around, but also from methane so sheep are ruminants which means that when they burp and fart they emit a greenhouse gas which is methane when we talk about greenhouse gases we usually think about co2 but methane is actually much more potent and it comes down to livestock so then by chance one of the guys from mj bale met a friend that he'd known 20 years ago when they both worked in fashion in different ways his name is sam elsom i used to know him too in my magazine days he used to have a little label and he had been watching the equivalent of 60 Minutes in Australia when he'd seen two scientists from our National Science Peak Body, CSIRO, talk about this wonderful discovery that they'd made, that a certain kind of red seaweed called asparagopsis, if fed in careful quantities to ruminant livestock, could reduce their methane emissions by 90% or up to 90%. And Sam Elson was like, what, what <laughs> could we do that for fashion? Could we do that for wool? And so he went into business with them. They set up this startup called Sea Forest, where they started to, in small tanks, raise this asparagopsis, which naturally occurs off the coast of Tasmania. That's in the south of Australia. I went, I went down there, I saw it. And they produced experimental quantities of these little pellets, like feed additions that they would feed to sheep and cows. And MJ Bell decided to do a pilot program with them where they got one of their farmers who makes single origin wool again in Tasmania on this wonderful property I went to visit to feed his sheep this addition of the seaweed pellets over a period of several, I don't know, like 30 weeks or something. And that did indeed reduce their methane emissions. So then they had this low emission wool. And that was amazing. But they didn't stop there because they were like, if we're going to ship this offshore to get it spun in Italy, we've defeated the object a bit. And that's what they normally do. 
So then they went on this epic adventure to try to make it all in Australia. And just like America, we've lost a lot of production capacity for weaving and spinning. And it was difficult, but they found a way. And in the end, they figured out they could get it spun into yarn. They couldn't get it woven into suiting cloth, but they could find this old lady knitter to make it into a sweater. So they made a collection of fine knit sweaters spun by this lady called Val, <laughs> whose only carbon footprint was the power it took to watch sport oh my god you did not put that in the book that's amazing (laughs) so funny i interviewed these people it was so good and then they were like how are we going to move this fiber from the farm this is where things get wild yeah (laughs) i i went back and reread this whole thing twice because i was like did they really do this (laughs) well i met this character they really did this. I don't know how they found two dogs. And that is his actual name. And I saw him the other day, he came to my book lunch in Sydney, and he did a theatrical reading. I asked him to read from the local chapter, and he didn't want to, he wanted to read from the chapter on less because it inspired him. But anyway, he's now changed his name to two dogs. Two dogs is his nickname because he used to have two dogs on his boat. And he's an adventurer and a sailor who had the who's got no engine in his sailing boat. <laughs> and agreed to cycle the bales of wool from the farm to the port in Tasmania, where he then sailed it using only wind power to mainland Australia, and then cycled it again to Geelong, where it was spun into yarn, and then picked it up and cycled it to Valerie, who knitted it <laughs> into 70 jumpers. And then he cycled back to (laughs) wherever he came from on the East Coast and then sailed it back up to Sydney to distribute it to the stores. I mean, they call it the lightest footprint, I think, or light, lightest, forgotten the name of it, but anyway, it's brilliant. (laughs) But I mean, returning to what we were talking about earlier about people not really understanding the value and all the steps work, like, and returning to how fashion has always been made um outside of the last hundred years this is how it happened this is exactly how it happened for thousands of years so it's only the last hundred years or so that we have this warped perspective and i and i use that word intentionally warped that fashion functions like this we are outside of actually fashion history right now somebody told me the other day april about why they'd started to reshore some or attempting to reshore some fiber and also spinning production in Australia and it was because of the pandemic remember when all the shipping just ground to a halt and we couldn't get Mm. the things we thought we would always have and so think of it that way like this idea of hyper convenience is actually based it's like a house of cards it might not be here and so if we don't invest in our local solutions we're in trouble right but the good news is I think we are actually starting to do that to look at how we can capacity build domestically it doesn't mean we're not global citizens or we can't be expansive in our thinking and our relationships and all that but making stuff is a beautiful thing and if we can do it locally and see and transparently and see how it's done and reduce our footprint that's gorgeous As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, 
that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. I mean, you do work with this theme about how collaboration benefits us all in the book. And I think that that's such a fascinating concept when it comes to producing locally. The collaboration that's happening now is between not even countries, but continents at this point. And so obviously all of that transportation is costing the planet, right? Uh, You also point out that the slow food movement is doing much better on this point than the slow fashion movement is. Oh yeah. I mean, think about how, how much we love to know the story of where uh i don't know take your pick pumpkins were grown or cheese was produced or wine was made and if you know the name of the person who did it and they tell you a story you like it more it's mm-hmm. a better experience i think that's just everyone can relate to that i love the fact that i met this absolutely crazy man two dogs <laughs> and that <laughs> the suit that he was wearing had that story behind it if i was in the market for a suit now if i was going to buy my husband a suit i would think about mj bale because i like the story mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. we we relate to that with food with the slow food movement or the hundred miles movement you know when only locally produced food is served in a lovely restaurant and so it's it's i think it's similar thinking to clothing yeah yeah and if only people can start to like bring their mindset back to that like it's gonna be a paradigm shift like it's gonna have to be and i think i'm gonna ask you a little bit more about this here in a second i'm also gonna suggest that it can be that as well as being other things so it's very difficult to to be all or nothing right and and unrealistic but if we just do more of that if we do more supporting local more supporting small Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean we have to give up everything global and fast but just i think it's about balance and at the moment, we've tipped mm-hmm. too far into the the globalized, fast, cheap balance. Yeah, yeah. If we can, for a second, I want to turn our attention away from local. I think part of this collaboration aspect, which we can all see will ultimately benefit us all, is also holding each other accountable for some of these steps along the way. And this also goes hand in hand with the concept that you introduce in the book of a digital digital passport. And would you talk to us a little bit about that? This idea of fashion using blockchain technology mm. and like a really interesting, positive way in terms of some of the companies that are working on this tech currently to make this possible. I was blown away by some of the companies that you talk about. Fibertrace. Yeah. And also Eon, just as an aside, I find it interesting that so many young women are behind these startups. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know what that says. I'm not gendered around this. I'm not saying that men or people of all genders can't be part of this future, but there's something about the old system being patriarchal and then women potentially, and I know we'll get some listeners who will be like, that's not right, but I'm just throwing it out there. There is a slightly more collaborative new way of thinking that I think whatever your gender, the patriarchy didn't help us achieve. And now there's just new thinking. And as a result, I'm seeing lots of young, dynamic, interesting women pushing new models. One of them is this brilliant American founder called Natasha Frank. She's got a company called Eon, E-O-N, and they are pioneering this idea of product passports. It's like digital ID for your clothes. And it's based on the idea that if we can't see something, we can't track it through the system. So when I was talking about all that stuff that gets exported and then it's hand sorted in different countries offshore, maybe by eye or feel, that's not efficient. In Natasha's world view of the future, you would simply be able to scan a piece of clothing and its digital passport would tell you, I am made of this, I have been here, mm -hmm. I was made here, I've been owned by these people, I've moved here and I can be recycled in this way. So it's very simple as an idea, like very elegant, but obviously it's been hard to get it all up and running, but it's essentially a cloud system that stores digital product ideas on the blockchain and she's working with massive companies on this now like target and i can't remember lots of them pvh and i think this is business of fashion just picked out product passports as one of their 10 shaping factors of the fashion future it's definitely coming and then the, the one you mentioned is fiber trace so that's another female founded startup it's an australian one her name is danielle stratum and Essentially, it embeds a luminescent marker in fibers like wool and cotton. They have to be in natural fibers at this point, at the field stage. And you can't see this marker, but they also provide the tech to be able to scan it. And then they back all this up on the blockchain. And what that means is that you can basically track the fiber in your cotton or wool garment right back to the farm. Amazing. Talking about knowing where something comes from. Yeah. There's one in New Zealand called Oritane that uses forensic, the same tech that they use in forensics at murder scenes, would you believe? So they can basically say, like they could with, it's a, it's a bit creepy, but this is where it came from. So at a murder scene, forensics will allow you to say this person, because of their hair, creepy, has moved from these areas. It's actually amazing. They're doing this now with this tech that they can embed in fiber, O-R-I-T-A-I-N, I think it's called Oritane, where essentially you can track that fiber down to a specific field. So wow. you could say it was on that side of the fence. Incredible. That's amazing. And they're doing that a lot with food stuff as well, so it's not just fiber. Huh. Wow. I mean, and this has so many bigger, broader applications. I do want to say though that like this whole future of fashion that we're kind of talking about doesn't necessarily have to rely on tech in so many other ways. This is also the story of fashion's past. Another company history that I'm hoping that you would talk about is the restory. What Vanessa Jacobs and her team did, what they created, it's low tech and also makes so much sense. So can you tell us about this? 
more female founders three of them this is such a beautiful and sensible idea which is a basically about repairing beautifully luxury garments and accessories and Vanessa is an American who moved to Britain a few years ago I think her fiance was Swedish or something worked in the city in London and she got there and she thought that it was going to be so easy to have his suits and her shoes serviced by brilliant people because she had this idea of London it's Savile Row it's the suits it's amazing history of boot makers etc and she took her boots to some sort of train station cobblers and then they stuffed it up and ruined them and then it had been such a hassle to take them there and she had a paper ticket and she had to take time off work and go and get them and then they were ruined and she's like this is not <laughs> this is not a useful efficient system why not and so she conceived of this company called the restory where skilled makers and repairers would be brought in-house in an atelier in london you'd be able to know their stories who they were and they would treat your designer goods with absolute reverence and do invisible mends on your jumpers make your handbag look as new amazing but it is a bit of a cautionary tale because they did this and they grew and they were much loved and adored and then they took on venture capital and lost the company i know i was so hard i was so invested when i was reading the book i was so invested in this story i'm like da, 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 and i was so excited and then when i got to that part i was like ah oh. And, you know, these are women, I met them with the utmost integrity and such good ideas. But I think maybe they were a bit ahead of the game in terms of timing and the customer wasn't quite ready for it. And, yeah, if you take on if you take on investors, you've got to be careful that they are on the same page with what you want to do. Another one that is making waves a lot is called Sojo, which also started in London, but I know that she is expanding elsewhere. Her name is Josephine mm. Phillips, but they started with biking your alterations to you mm. to reduce your fiber carbon footprint in the city. So they'd come to your house, pick up your stuff that needed your hem taking up, bike it over to a repairer and then send it back. But again, all done through an app. So very efficient, very transparent and user friendly. But again, all about circularity and keeping clothing in use for longer from high tech innovation to this return to care and craft um, that that we've just been talking about. These are two kind of different approaches to fashion's future. But I just want to say that this underscores that there's not just one way, which is something that we were kind of touched on briefly earlier, you know, this quote unquote fashion problem, it can be approached from so many different angles to reach this common goal. But but I think that what that common goal is, is that we all have to give deeper thinking to this topic. There has to be a fundamental paradigm shift. We have to shift our focus to a way of thinking where the earth is going to come first. Um, and, and this is not a novel concept. <laughs> it might be a novel concept that for the last 200 years or so has been lost to us in quote unquote Western society. But, you know, there is so much that the fashion world right now in the fashion industry can learn from indigenous approaches to caring for our planet. And you address this in a few different ways in the book. Would you talk about some of these? It was, yeah, it was really important for me to 
center that in a in a whole chapter because we talk so much about tech solutions and get so dazzled by the idea of new materials or I don't know space age as yet unimagined ways of accessing and making fashion but I do think as you said there it just comes down to connecting with our relationship with earth and with each other and first nations people wrote the book on that and in the fashion space in particular there are some amazing indigenous designers stewards of land and also environmentalists that are all overlapping those things in doing work that is i think grounding and exciting but also if we talk about social justice which i do care very deeply about it has to especially in a country that i live in australia where our first peoples have been here for more than sixty-five thousand years let's remember where everything comes from weaving dying with natural dyes and and then fast forward to actually a very exciting dynamic first nations design present that we have here but in the book i i talk about first nations wisdom in the chapter on regenerative which i guess you'd think would mean regenerative agriculture and we do talk about that but i wanted to bring it back to the original wisdom and I interviewed some beautiful thinkers in that. And Cass and I, of course, have done several different episodes now on dressed on Native American fashion here in the US. Native American designers are getting ready to have their own entire fashion week here coming up next year. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. There's always there's, so there's always been a component of the Indian market in Santa Fe at Swaya having their fashion show each year. I mean, now a couple different fashion shows each year, but now it's going to be an entire Native American fashion week here in the US. So brilliant. that's coming next year. So brilliant. Um, in Australia, shout out to them because it's so great. An amazing, two amazing designers, um, Tegan Callishaw and Grace Lillian Lee started a thing called First Nations Fashion and Design, which was the world's first peak body for First Nations fashion creatives. And creatives is important because it's not just designers. It was about pathways for photographers, stylists, oh, cool. makeup artists, and supporting First Nations pathways into those industries. It's really a, a dynamic time for that. Mm -hmm. I love it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I this brings me to a very real point, I think, for you, because you use this phrase um, in the book, but this also opens your podcast. Every time you use this, you say fashion is a <laughs> verb. I think that a lot of us lose sight of this um, sometimes, but but where does this phrase come from? And I, I want to know why this resonates for you particularly, because <laughs> I think that like this ties back into exactly what we were just talking about making, right? It's, it's not yeah. just the designers, it's the making of it all. Thank you for bringing that up. You know why I use it as a as the only standing quote at the beginning of our podcast. I I used to have a mashup of different quotes, but I just left that one. It's not actually to do with all these big ideas. It's to do with Bill's velvet voice and what a thrill it was to interview this man. And April, you probably feel the same. Sometimes you get to interview people who are like your legend heroes, and it's a, an absolute thrill. And you just think, this is why I do this. Mm -hmm. And so that is a quote from William McDonough, who is the co-author of Cradle to Cradle, a seminal book about circular economy. But he's like a legend. He's a legend. 
he was an architect. He's American. He's uh, much older now. I'm not sure how old he is. He's a venerable gentleman, but he's just got the biggest brain and a velvet voice. And I got the chance to sit down opposite him and interview him in person. And it was quite a last minute. And I prepared a load of questions, but he hadn't read them. And the generosity with which he talked to me was just a rare gift. He told me wonderful stories. He listened to everything I said and then reacted. You know, sometimes you talk to people and they just say their piece. He was like so engaged. He talked about how Deanna Vreeland had praised his bow tie when he was a young man at a gallery. <laughs> and he told all these stories. But anyway, fashion as a verb was just him when I asked him to explain the meaning of circularity. And he brought it back to this idea that fashion isn't just aesthetics or all of the things we, you and I began talking about April about consumerism or brands or accessing stuff. He's like, no, it's an action. It's a verb. It's the act of making and doing. And it goes back as you do to the history of dress. Mm -hmm. I think it's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's been happening for thousands of years, thousands of years. Okay. So we've been talking just now about some admittedly kind of like high tech and complex solutions to this fashion problem. And some of those may feel a little bit intimidating to our listeners or, or you know, not necessarily something that they feel like they can jump into and participate in tomorrow. So do you have any recommendations about how our listeners at home can best enact change in their everyday life? in terms of of clothes and their wardrobe and fashion. I do. And I'm going to keep it really brief because I know I've talked a lot and thank you for having me. <laughs> There's so many big and complex ideas around how we could, like you say, reframe the industry. But I think it just for the individual comes down to stop, think, connect. Like before you make a purchase, don't just let your impulse run away with you. Stop and think about it. And then the connection bit is find out. This is stolen from Fashion Revolution, actually. Find out, be curious, do something. So again, it's just about connection. Find out the stories, ask about the making, read the labels, think about why you connect with this garment. And if in fact you do, <laughs> and then you have a, a much more, I think, joyful experience with it. Well, and it also goes back to that, what you were talking about in terms of like having a story behind the garment. I only buy vintage or generally speaking, for, if I buy something new, it's from a designer that I know personally. And most of my friends who are fashion designers work in the ethical mode. But I do give myself every once in a while a little pass to buy something new that it's just like, okay, I really, really love this. It's like the one or two things that I'm going to buy this year that, you know, it gets a pass. So I bought this beautiful, I was out shopping months ago with my friend Kitten and I bought this. Kitten? Yes. Her name is Kitten. <laughs> Best name ever. Um, I found this gorgeous, 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 like bright bubblegum pink sweater that had these poofy little, like little shoulder pads in it. And it was new. And I was like, this is amazing. This is my one thing that I'm going to buy this year that gets the sustainability pass. I took it home. I had it in the shopping bag for a couple days. I took it out and it had this card on it that I hadn't read while I was in the store because we were busy chatting and just like hanging out. I flipped it over and it was the entire story of where my sweater came from and that it was 
sustainable and it had all the information on it. And I just had assumed because I was like hanging out with my friend and shopping that it wasn't. And that Mm. was, I bet you love it even more. Yeah. And that was just such like a refreshing moment that I literally thought this was the thing that was going to get a pass and it just entered my life anyway. So (laughs) I just, I, I just think that, you know, the day-to-day things, um, they make a difference, but also sometimes the the things surprise you too. So Claire, you are of course a fellow podcaster and for any of our audience who does not already follow your show, um, this is ultimately an intense interest crossover. So for any of our listeners who don't already follow Wardrobe Crisis, would you tell them a little bit about the show and also where people can find you? Oh my gosh, thank you. Thank you so much. That's a very, very kind um, offer. So I have this show, Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. I've been doing it for about seven years. And each week we interview, each week, unless I'm too busy and tired, we interview people who are connected with the story of fashion and sustainability, but it might not be a designer. It might be a scientist. It might be about soil health it might be a farmer it might be about trees and i just love it and i do it as a as you do as a passion project because i get to meet some cracking people and learn so much stuff it's my life favorite thing yeah yeah (laughs) so please do listen to it and also april please do come on the show i want first of all i wish i could look in your library but we could talk about the history of fashion as i've written about the future of fashion i'd love to hear more of your stories about why you care about that and what lessons it can teach yes. us. Also, can I come on your New York fashion tour? Absolutely. It's in December. <laughs> I should, I'll do one more shameless plug. You can find me. I like Instagram. If you want to talk to me about any of this stuff, you can find me at Mrs. Press. Yes, yes, yes. And so Claire, I'm so glad that you finally joined us on the show. Like I said, at the top of this episode, having you on is wildly overdue. Um, This is your second book. And again, I just want to say that it's actually a beacon of hope. We, we hope we don't scare people away about some of the, you know, bigger, scarier topics that we talked about a little bit, because that is really not the tone of the book at all. It, it, it is what we need right now, quite frankly, in terms of thinking about fashion's future. And so just thank you so much for writing it and, and sharing it with all of us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Claire, for not only joining us all this week on Dressed, but for also the latest in your bevy of books on fashion and sustainability. And listeners, in part one of this episode, I think I made a reference to Where Next being Claire's second book, Mia Culpa. I think it's actually her third book just on fashion and sustainability. So Where Next is out now in both Australia and in the US. And she also wanted me to mention that the European edition of the book will be out this coming February in case um, some of the listeners there are having a little difficulty getting their hands on a copy at this exact moment. So fear not, it is coming your way soon. And if you would like to follow Claire on Instagram, you can find her at Mrs. Press and also her podcast, of course, at wardrobecrisis.com or on any of your other major podcast platforms. If you would like to follow us on Instagram, you can do so at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episodes. And if you would like to write to us, you can do so at hello at dressedhistory.com. Did you know that you can now listen to Dressed ad-free for just $3 a month? Skip those ads by subscribing to the ad-free version of Dressed, which will be delivered straight to your feed, just like normal. 
And you can do so by checking out the link on our show notes or also check out our Instagram link tree to subscribe to our exclusive content, which is, of course, the ad-free version of the show. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you ponder where fashion's future resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.